Hello, I'm Julie Bindle, and today I'm talking with the criminologist, Emma Milne. We need to get rid of these laws. We need to take abortion out of the criminal law and make it a, another medical procedure that is regulated by the medical community in exactly the same way organ transplant is. Emma is assistant professor at Durham University and she is an expert on the threat to women's rights when it comes to the criminalisation of abortion. Now, you think that we have decriminalised abortion in England and Wales. Well, think again, because there are some old and obscure laws and some that are being redefined and reasserted that means that women have actually been imprisoned for illegally ending their pregnancies. And currently there are two women facing prosecution for such so-called crime. And in fact, fetal homicide laws are a real mess because officially a fetus has limited protection under the criminal law, but in reality, pregnant women are being criminalised and they're being criminalised under archaic offences for perceived poor mothering. Now, have a listen to this and be worried. So, Emma, it's really good to meet you. Thank you for doing this. Thank you so much for having me. It's, it's great to have this opportunity to talk to you about this really important and quite scary issue. Yes, scary indeed and almost dystopian. And obviously people mention Handmaid's Tale and people talk about women having absolutely no bodily autonomy and rights being rolled back when it comes down to whether it's abortion or just control over our reproductive systems. Tell me about you, about the work that you do and how you started to drill down onto the issue of effectively women being criminalised um, through through pregnancy. It wasn't the intended outcome for all my PhD research. So the intended outcome was to look at women who are criminalised and uh, to focus on women who kill newborn children and commit infanticide. So very much thinking about a baby being born and then a woman taking steps to kill that the, the baby, um, which obviously is, is an important issue in and of itself. But then when I really started looking at the cases, what became very clear was that there was this real uh, point of tension in the cases and the prosecution of these cases as to whether or not the prosecution could prove that the baby had been born alive. And the importance of that born alive aspect is due to the way criminal law in England and Wales and the rest of the United Kingdom actually is still structured. So if you're born alive, which means that uh, you, the baby is fully out of the woman's birth canal, so no part of, of the baby can still be inside the woman and is alive at that point. If that's happened, then that baby is, is a human being in law in exactly the same way as you or I or any of our listeners are. But if part of that baby is still inside the birth canal when it dies or if it dies um, prior to birth happening, then uh, they can't use the same sorts of homicide offences that they would use if it was a born alive child. And the law becomes quite sticky in that area. So in, in theory, there's quite a clear line there. You're either born alive, you're a legal human, you therefore have full legal protection, or you're not born alive and you're not a legal human and you don't have 
legal protection. However, what became quite clear when I started looking at some of these cases where the, the live birth of the baby was under dispute was that although the law should be quite clear, the woman has very limited legal requirements to protect an unborn baby, actually what is happening is prosecutors are using existing laws to effectively criminalise women for harming a foetus or failing to protect a foetus when that wasn't the intention of that piece of criminal legislation and it also isn't the intention of English criminal law. In, in English criminal law, we don't protect foetuses um, except under some very, very specific circumstances. But that's not how the law is working at the moment. This is incredible. I mean, obviously, you know, you're, a, you're an associate professor in criminal law and you have dealt with, analysed issues relating to, to women, to inequality and all kinds of criminal justice let's say failings or shortcomings, but this is something that I didn't think would come to England and Wales, to the UK. We've seen this in the United States. I remember, and I think we talked about this previously, having a conversation with my very old late friend, Andrea Dworkin, the writer and feminist campaigner, when she wrote an article in the Guardian newspaper in 2004, just a few months before she died, which was about Scott Peterson, which, of course, you will know. Um, Scott Peterson, who was sentenced to death for the murder of his wife and their unborn child. And clearly, this was a man who was violent, who had committed acts of domestic violence and abuse towards this woman, who had murdered her, who'd concealed her body... I mean, a really dangerous man, and I campaign against all forms of male violence towards women, and in particular, um, the, the kind of homicide that comes from unbridled domestic abuse. But I really argued with, with Dworkin about this, about the fact that he should be sentenced and should, that he should be given an additional sentence for killing what was described as an unborn child, as though it wasn't enough that he'd actually murdered his partner. And, and I didn't understand what the issue about an unborn child, because we as feminists, of course, had always referred to a fetus and recognised that there were aggravating factors if, for example, men kicked a fetus out of a woman and she miscarried. But, but to refer to an unborn child as a human being, I think, was quite shocking to feminists in the UK. Yeah, I absolutely. And I, I think when when people think about these issues, they generally think, oh, this is something that's going on over in the US. It's, you know, it's it's part of their crazy approach to abortion. And that's not something that's happening here in England and Wales. And there's certainly some very specific issues happening in America that are very connected to their politics and to their, you know, the control of the religious right, particularly. But actually, when you look at these cases, similar ideas of the value of the fetus and the need to protect the fetus. And uh, in addition to that, the wrongness of any woman who wouldn't put a fetus first, that is also very apparent in these sorts of cases. And that's really worrying because 
So the US has got its own issues, which you know we might want to discuss uh, in a in a bit. But in the US, you kind of expect it in some respects because they very much have this this very active, very strong anti-abortion lobby group who have you know very successfully overturned Roe v. Wade. Um, we don't have that in the same way, or well, certainly we. It might be it's growing now, but we haven't had it historically, and yet these same ideas are embedded in in the prosecution of these women. And when you look at the court transcripts of those women who have been prosecuted, which is what I did in my research, you can literally see that being said by the prosecutors, this notion of, you know, uh, you, you didn't do what should have been done to put the fetus first. You know, uh, I think one of the judges in, in one of the cases, uh, and this was a woman who was actually convicted of concealment of birth which is a miscellaneous offence against society. It's the concealment of a dead body of a baby to conceal the fact it was ever born. So no form of offence against the person, offence against the fetus or anything like that. She's, you know, she's been criminalised for hiding a dead body effectively. And yet the, the phrase from the judge when he was sentencing her was along the lines of, you know, the actions you took due to your drinking, your promiscuity, your drug use would have risked the health of any unborn child. You know, making it very clear that he's holding her responsible for killing, in inverted commas there, the fetus, not for the hiding of the body. And these comments could have been made in 1840. Absolutely. This, this is the shock. And speaking of a kind of, you know, historical perspective, can you just talk us through what has happened, the kind of peaks and troughs um, in Britain since the 1967 Abortion Act, which, you know, just to remind listeners, only allowed for legal abortion on a number of grounds. It didn't actually give a free choice to women, but it it kind of decriminalised certain aspects of it. Is that fair to say? Yeah, actually, and I would go further than that. Um, and, and to really understand the Abortion Act, we need to actually go back to the Victorian period. So 1803 was the first time that abortion was criminalised. So the offence of procuring a miscarriage was enacted in 1803. Now, what's significant about when it was enacted was that the language of the Act actually leads to a clear interpretation that abortion was criminalised not because they wanted to protect fetuses, but because they wanted to protect women from botched abortions. Um, And even more significant, women themselves couldn't be prosecuted under the 1803 legislation that came in. It was very much focused on um, unskilled abortion providers who, who end up killing a woman as a process, as a part of that abortion taking place. Then 1861 comes round and they reenact the legislation. So there'd been t- um, two other versions of reenactment by that point, but again, all of those hadn't criminalised women. 1861, women are added to the, the piece of legislation. So this is section 58 of the Offences Against the Person Act. And pure, procuring abortion is now an offence uh, that women can commit themselves if they procure their own abortion. Now, we don't really know why Parliament did that. Uh, there's, there was no parliamentary debate about the reenactment of, of the offence of procuring a miscarriage. But it's only at that point that women actually start being prosecuted for procuring their own miscarriage. But again, the the general thought of legal historians is that actually the main focus there was upon stopping illegal abortion because of how dangerous it was for women, not because of the notion of we want to protect fetal life. Then as you move into the, the, uh, the 20th century, 
actually the focus starts changing and the notion of fetal life needing to be protected actually really starts to grow as an idea. Uh, and at the same time, doctors particularly start challenging the idea that all abortion would be illegal and there should be some instances where they themselves should be able to make the choice to give a woman a legal abortion. And that's really where the 1967 Abortion Act has its roots, is this notion that it's down to doctors to decide who should and should not be allowed to have an abortion. So not only does, does the 1967 Abortion Act not give women free choice as to when they should have an abortion, it also doesn't provide a woman with any legal defence if she procures her own abortion. The only people it provides a legal defence for are the doctors themselves who are the ones perfor performing the abortion. So you've got a situation at the moment where telemedical abortion is now legal, but only if a licensed abortion provider gives the woman that medication. If she procures it herself through uh, another organisation such as uh, Women on the Web, who provide abortion medication in countries where it's difficult to obtain, she would then be breaking the 1861 procuring a miscarriage offence and she would have no defence under the Abortion Act. Well, I mean, I just don't know what to say because just when you think that you've heard the worst things at present, and I've been a, a law reform campaigner for decades and think I've seen the worst. Something else comes along to test us. Obviously, that always happens. We're always surprised. But how did we get here? Because, of course, we have always had those campaigning to criminalise abortion, but way fewer and less attached to, probably, to institutionalised religion than in the US and possibly less connected to the kind of hard right than in the US. But we have had those that some people inaccurately refer to as pro-life. I refer to them as forced birthers. But, but why are we in a situation where there is such disdain for the bodily autonomy of women, where, as you said earlier, Emma, that the fetus is given a higher status and given more rights than a woman, whatever her circumstances. So I think this has been a very slow development and a, a kind of a slow growing uh, idea as to the significance and the, the importance of the fetus. And it's not something that the criminal justice system themselves have just kind of envisaged and, and enacted and, and gone through with with these particular cases. This actually has its roots in, in much broader society. And we can see it in the changing perceptions of how women are expected to behave when they're pregnant. So um, a really good example is the changing advice that's given around women drinking alcohol while they're pregnant. So back in 1999, the advice essentially was a bit of alcohol, not too much, won't do any damage at all, not a problem at all. Then that, that was then changed to the extent that when we're getting into kind of 2008, the, the advice is no alcohol whatsoever. All alcohol is bad. Now, that advice is not based upon any evidence. There is no evidence that says that a small amount of alcohol would be any harm to a fetus at all. But the advice is on the basis of, we don't actually know if a small, of alcohol, small amount of alcohol might be bad for the fetus. Therefore, we just think you should abstain completely. Now, the reason why we don't know for definite if a small amount of alcohol might be bad for a fetus is because no one's actually going to do those tests on pregnant women 
it's, you know, that would be really unethical research. But this notion of adopting a, an anti-risk perception of a woman should in absolutely no way behave uh, in, in an instance that would cause any form of risk for her fetus. Therefore, no alcohol. And we can see that in, in similar kind of activity around and similar advice around, you know, what she should eat while she's pregnant. Uh, you know, if she should cut out excess stress. Um, there's been some horrendous guidance, particularly coming out of Scotland, that suggests that um, if a woman, if there's a possibility a woman could get pregnant, she should leave her abusive partner. She should make sure she hasn't got HIV. She should lose weight. She should, uh, you know, get rid of her stressful job. All of these things that they're suggesting she should do, not for her own health and well-being, but just in case, just on the off chance that she could actually get pregnant. And this notion that it's women's responsibility to do everything they can to protect a fetus is, is now thoroughly embedded within our society. You know, if you want to test this, find a pregnant woman or hopefully a friend rather than grabbing one off the street, but ask a pregnant woman to uh, go into a pub and order, you know, a pint and just watch the mayhem that ensues of the people around her kind of, oh, are you sure you should be, is that for you? Are you sure you should be drinking, you know? Mm. I've seen it. I mean, I've been in bars. I was in a restaurant with a woman who was visibly pregnant and her male partner, and she held out her glass for the waiter to pour her some. And he turned to her male partner and said, is she allowed any? It was actually quite unbelievable. And this is a waiter who had English as a first language. It wasn't a kind of misunderstanding. He didn't word it in a way that could be misconstrued. He was asking if she was allowed. And so everyone has permission over that woman's body, except for herself. Yep. Absolutely. And, and it's just, it's embedded across society. And it now is not only operating on women who are pregnant or women who are attempting to become pregnant, therefore, you know, could be pregnant kind of imminently. We're now seeing it operating on all women of reproductive age. So the World Health Organization issued draft guidance on their alcohol uh, policy for, for countries across the world. And within that, there was a very small section on um, vulnerable people who should limit their alcohol use. And within that was children, for understandable reasons, but also within that was women of reproductive age. So it was this, it was kind of a very quick throwaway one-liner, but it made it very clear that the World Health Organization was suggesting that countries should, should be giving out the health message to all of their people if you are a woman of reproductive age, you should not be drinking any alcohol because of the risk that you might become pregnant and therefore you might be harming a fetus that not only may you not want, but also you haven't actually conceived yet. It's, it's absolutely balmy. I mean, there, there, is, there is definitely, in my view, a class element in this. And I want to ask you about this. Because I remember being in this really expensive, but, you know, luxurious cheese shop in a build-up to Christmas. You know where you spend more money than you normally would and you get all kinds of different cheeses that you might not have tried before. And there was a, a very middle-class young couple, um, heterosexual couple, the woman she was pregnant, and he was talking about how he wanted to make sure that all of the cheeses that they bought couldn't harm her, meaning the unborn baby, if she ate it. And everybody in the queue started joining in. Oh, I've heard unpasteurised cheese. 
is not very good. And oh, what about this? And they were making a huge fuss. And she was gloating. And she was she looked very smug. And she looked very, I hate to say it, say it about another woman, but very attention-seeking. She loved it. Now, that's one thing. She gets lots of attention. She gets lots of fuss. Um, she's able to command the attention of the shopkeeper and leave us all waiting, bored, while they talked about what cheese she could possibly have, as if a piece of, you know, unpasteurised blue cheese would would kill her or the fetus. Whilst in the meantime, there's a working class woman in a pub drinking half a lager, who's seen as the devil incarnate. And nobody comes and chats to her about, oh, what's safe for you? It's all just condemnation. And I've seen the way that working class mothers, particularly single mothers, are absolutely vilified for doing anything that seemed to be harmful at all, including actually shouting at her child in the street because he or she is about to run under a bus, where people feel the need to interfere in that really punitive way. Have you seen this on class grounds? One of the ways in which I look at these cases, and I, I think it's really important to draw on this really strong body of feminist literature, it's 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 uh, second wave feminist literature and it's still as strong as it was when it was first being written, is this, they talk about the myths of motherhood. So this idea of to be a proper mother, you have to conform to these uh, perceptions of what that is. So, you know, your child is only, only, only you can look after it. So only the mother has the ability to care for it the way it should be cared for. All women should want children. And that's a real sense of proper womanhood to, uh, to want to give birth and nurture a baby. Um, and as part of that, the child has to become the sole focus of your existence. So you're only there to raise, to nurture, to care, to love. Now, one of the key things about these myths is they are heavily, heavily classed. So there, there needs to be a huge amount of financial income in order to be able to meet the myths of motherhood. Because you need to, it's not just about doting and love, it's about, you know, all of the stuff you're going to buy it in order for it to, to have that perfect life that, that you as the ideal mother will be able to give it. And that's definitely embedded in a lot of what we're talking about and, and in a lot of these cases that we're looking at. Because the reality is the women who are, ending up in the situation where they are taking steps to acquire abortion medication illegally. Um, they are potentially past the period where they would be able to access abortion medication legally. They are women who are very much in a crisis and very much in difficult circumstances. Now, it's not to say that is never going to happen to a middle-class woman, but the reality is middle-class women have far more resources to be able to you know, avoid this sort of situation. They usually have uh, the means to avoid crisis in ways that a lot of these other women who have who are the focus of these cases actually just don't. That's a good point. And also, it is far more likely that a impoverished working class single mother would end up in prison or within the criminal justice system as a defendant um, and as a victim than maybe women who have more economic privilege and and of course that's a generalization but we we know it to be kind of broadly true and and I wonder if there's anything that you found in your research that shows that as women's rights 
are questioned and I don't mean necessarily removed within a legal structural context but where misogyny and a kind of casual everyday sexism is rampant that it's more likely that there'll be a very harsh reckoning on women in this way. I mean you you, you refer to this kind of phenomenon as fetus first mentality and I'm wondering if this is because women just right now in my view appear to have fewer rights than pretty much anyone that our rights are now seen as completely up for grabs. Yeah I would completely agree with that and I think it's significant that no woman well certainly from the research I've done that I could find women weren't being prosecuted with procuring a miscarriage until 2012 that was the first prosecution that I'm aware of there was a case back in um, 2008 of a woman who was uh, convicted of the offense of um, child destruction now child destruction dates back to uh, I can never remember if it's 1928 or 1929 but it's one of it's right at the end of the 20s and the the reason why this offense was actually brought in was because uh, so you have the born alive rule. So if a baby is born alive, you can use homicide, you can use any other crime if a woman then harms it. If the woman procures her own miscarriage, you could use procuring a miscarriage. So if she starts the labour intentionally in order for the, the, the fetus or baby to die, there's an offence there. If a woman goes into natural spontaneous labour and then she, the baby is killed either by her or somebody else in the process of birth, so before live birth has been um, obtained then um, there's no criminal offence or there wasn't until uh, um, child destruction was brought in so it's it's one of these really odd ones because there seemed to be this view amongst um, all men it should be noted medics uh, lawyers and politicians that women were actively waiting till they could go into labour and then strangling a child while part of its body was still inside her birth canal. Now, I found absolutely no evidence that there's a single woman who ever actually did that. So this feels like one of those kind of myths of like the evilness of women rather than an actual reality. But this is how this criminal offence came about. So it was never designed to be an, an additional abortion piece of legislation. It was designed to fit this, this very odd kind of gap in the law that we had. And yet the way it's used today is as if it is a form of abortion legislation. And there was a woman back in 2008 who was convicted of child destruction. Again, she, she obtained medication uh, via the internet and took it when her, her fetus was passed viability. Now, significantly in that case, she wasn't in prison. She received a custodial sentence for that. Then you move forward to 2012 and the first woman is prosecuted for procuring a miscarriage. And she receives, um, at first, it was a 12-year sentence. It was reduced to five years in the Court of Appeal. So now, since 2012, not only are women being prosecuted, but women are now being imprisoned. And I think that is a very significant shift. And that says a lot for me about the value of women and their rights over their bodies. I totally agree. And also, the lack of concern about her and she may have other children, her dependents the quality of life that this will mean, the the inevitability of being ensconced in the care system if she's in prison and there are no relatives to take care of these children. 
So they say that they care about the fetus, effectively, more than they do the life of a woman, the rights of a woman, the liberty of a woman. But where is the support for children who, for example, mothers are being sent to prison for not paying a fine, women uh, in prostitution who can't live on benefits? It's, It's as though they're being rather hypocritical, isn't it? Because I haven't noticed working class women get lots of support for their children and recognition of how hard their existence is. I mean, all of the women, for example, taking their small children along with them to food banks. What are we doing about that? What's our government, our legislators, doing about entrenched poverty? Yeah, and that's exactly a key argument that I make in the book, is in all of these cases, it's always presented as, this is a woman who failed to do her job as a woman, which is to protect her fetus. And never in that situation, and this is not just in these cases, but across the criminal justice system, never in those situations does anybody step back and say, right, well, what's the context and why is this woman in that context that means that she feels she's had to illegally take medication to end a pregnancy? Um, you know, why has she, why, why does she feel like she can't tell anybody she's pregnant? Why is she so scared about people finding out that she's pregnant, that she's prepared to take what are incredibly extreme acts um you know and that i think is a key aspect of where we are failing as a wider society but specifically in terms of criminal justice is we always base it on the notion of um the individual is responsible for their own behavior unless they can demonstrate with psychiatric evidence that they have some sort of mental deficiency um again that's you know it's all in inverted commas because the law is very bizarre in the way it it understands mental deficiency but unless she can do that we assume that she is entirely responsible for everything she's done but that doesn't take it into account the violence that she's experienced the poverty that she's experienced the fear of her husband that she's got you know none of that is in there i remember back in the early days of justice for women so around 1992 there was a case that we were supporting This woman was holding her two-year-old child when her violent partner battered her and battered the infant, and the infant died. And she was convicted of failure to protect, and he was convicted of violence, of a violent crime, GBH, attempted murder whatever. And she was given a longer sentence than he was. And I remember being in court, listening to her be sentenced and her wailing in pain and agony because she had lost her child and she had to go to prison and deal with that pain behind bars. So there's always been something, hasn't there, within this deeply misogynistic society and the way that the law is framed, a man-made law, that punishes women whatever they do, whether they're bad mothers, whether they won't be mothers, whether they are mothers but they're found wanting. And I just wondered what you thought about the kind of failure to protect legislation and how you might have seen or heard about that come down on women. Yeah, I mean, it's 
it's just so unjust isn't it it's i've heard people justify it as well sometimes we don't know which one's done it so it allows us to to prosecute them both and hopefully one of them flips and then we get a prosecution on the other and you just think again it's it's a complete i mean it can't be a complete unknowing of this pain and suffering of women it's got to be a sense of they just don't care they, you know, they, they are interested purely in what's happened to the child, which of course is really important. And, you know, I would never would I, I argue that um, a child or, or even a fetus being killed is not significant, particularly when we're thinking about pregnancy, if it's, if that woman wanted that fetus. Um, pregnancy is a time when a woman is more likely to either experience intimate partner violence for the first time or the, the violence will escalate. So this is a time of risk for women from men. But there does seem to just be this unwillingness by, by society as a whole, but also by the criminal justice system to contextualise these cases and to stand back and think about um, the woman as a victim of the situation, not a co-perpetrator with the man. And I, I really, I wonder if this is it's part of the kind of drive towards the notion of women have equality so this position we're now in of second wave feminism happened it's fine because women are now equal to men and therefore we need to punish them in exactly the same way as we punish men if if a baby dies which obviously doesn't work because of all the context and the situations that we've been talking about and in addition to that just the continued unwillingness to to appreciate that violence that women continue to to experience at the hands of men under patriarchy and again I, I I always wonder is this because in order to accept that and to acknowledge that society has to appreciate that it's failed it hasn't yet managed to protect women yes it's true I think that women are punished because we're not doing what we're supposed to do whether it's by choosing not to have children or whether it's having children outside of a heterosexual relationship, or whether we don't protect a child from his violence. And I've seen this when women in prostitution are hideously abused by pimps and hideously abused by punters who might come to her home through no choice of her own. And she's told, unless she can find a way to get herself out of prostitution, to get away from that violent man, then her child will be taken away from her. And I've known women, many of them over the years, who've chosen not to disclose domestic violence because she's terrified that her child will be removed. And that happened in a recent case that I'm sure you heard of in Solihull, where a mother and uh, a daughter were stabbed to death in the street by a perpetrator who'd been reported by the daughter several times to police, who was clearly a high-risk perpetrator. And she had really kind of held back from reporting some acts of extreme violence by him because social services had warned her that she'd have her child taken away. And the idea of that was too much for her. She, you know, she she couldn't envisage that, and of course, nobody asked questions why. Yeah, and 
I'm try- I was just trying to look up the name of the American author who writes about this specifically in, in relation to black women in the US of talking about there's this desire of someone has to someone has to pay if a child has been harmed or a child has been killed and the easiest thing to do is to blame the mother because again it goes back to these myths of motherhood that I was talking about earlier it's her job it's we never see it as men's job to protect the child which is bizarre because we do have this sense of he's the protector of the family and the owner of the family but that's again that's in a very patriarchal sense of ownership Whereas in terms of nurture, that's always the mother that we that society sees as it's her responsibility. So the easiest thing to do is to um, to to blame her and to see her as the responsible party, and that is that um, level and that sense of responsibility is dramatically increased if that woman is working class or if she's uh, not not white. So from uh, you know. A, black or black ethnicity for example particularly if we're talking about the US there's that's really significant um and it it just it does it baffles me but I think it does come back to this ease of well we can just point the finger at her prosecute her for something and then justice has been done I want to ask you about another kind of legal trajectory which many people either don't know about or don't understand it or misunderstand it which is the infanticide act 1922, which effectively abolished the death penalty for women who had deliberately killed their newborn child. The requirement was that the child had to be under 12 months old. And she had to show that the balance of her mind was disturbed. So like the diminished responsibility, um, partial defence to murder, which many people see as giving a woman a licence to kill her child and that she would get away with it scot-free. And actually, that isn't true, is it? But I know that there's been shifts in both the perception, I suppose, the social context and the way that the law is framed around infanticide in more recent years. Could you just talk us through that? Mm, absolutely. The, the the significant thing about the Infanticide Act, you've already noted that the death penalty was still in place when it was enacted. But the other aspect is that there was no diminished responsibility in England and Wales. There was up in Scotland, interestingly, they were one of the first countries that brought in a form of diminished responsibility and they don't have an infanticide act. So there's an interesting tension there up in Scotland. But in England and Wales, at that time, if a woman killed her infant, she had no form of defence outside of insanity as everybody else. Uh, So the Infanticide Act allowed for her to not be executed as long as she could demonstrate the balance of her mind was disturbed by reason of giving birth. Now, again, the context of these laws becomes really significant because what was actually happening on the ground is although women were technically being found guilty of murder and therefore should have been executed, what was really happening was juries were refusing to find women guilty of murder. They were finding very technical legal positions, usually around that born alive rule that I was talking about earlier. Um, And so finding women not guilty, including in cases where there was a huge amount of evidence that would suggest she probably had killed a live born baby and therefore should have been convicted. And then if she was convicted, she wasn't being executed. So the last woman to be executed for infanticide was back in the 1830s. So the the lawyers and the politicians were incredibly concerned about this because they thought women were getting away with murder but because of the harshness of the law so they brought in the infanticide act 
Now, the other thing that's, that's significant about the Infanticide Act is that the, the, the balance of the mind was disturbed, was not understood when enacted as a form of psychiatric disturbance. It was understood as a form of a frenzy that that woman was in due to the context of the birth. So these women were working class, um, housemaids, shop girls. They were pregnant outside of marriage at a time when that was just simply impossible for women to be without facing economic and social ruin. And they concealed their pregnancies, gave birth on their own and were killing the babies for, you know, for understandable reasons, considering that context. Now, that's why juries were refusing to convict so the law was written in a way that allowed for this lenient stance but on this very kind of woolly legal reason of the balance of her mind was disturbed rather than it being very psychiatric you fast forward to today and you're right today it it applies to uh, women who kill children under the age of uh, 12 months and we've lost that sense of the the balance of her mind was disturbed the focus is now on does she have this psychiatric defence as if it's the same as something like diminished responsibility, which is a very specific medical defence? The consequence of that is that we've once again lost that context of why a woman ends up in a situation where she's hidden her pregnancy from the world. She's probably denying it to herself because she can't bear to think about the fact she's pregnant. And she's given birth on her own. And then in the process of the birth or shortly after birth, Either she has taken steps to end the child's life or what is more likely is that she has um, effectively neglected the child and it's, it's died of not having attendance after birth. That's all been lost, which again I find really difficult to understand because no woman purposely goes out to get pregnant because she really wants to give birth on her own and kill a newborn baby. Women end up in this situation because of the crisis that their pregnancy is causing them. Quite. And yet... We still don't really have an emphasis on men's irresponsibility in not being able to keep it in their pants. No, and not only that, but really horrifying. In a number of these cases, the judges have talked about how these men are also victims of what the women have done. So these men who have got women pregnant and in some instances have never spoken to that woman again, so had sex with her once and then never been seen again. In one horrendous case... The girl had only just turned 16 and the man was 23 or 24 and she claimed that he raped her. It says in the court transcript that he, you know, she only, she was only raped in her mind. In reality, she'd led him on. Um, he'd never been seen or heard of since and yet he was considered to be a victim of the fact that she'd killed the baby while she was suffering post-traumatic stress after she'd given birth alone. This is a 16-year-old girl. Gosh, the suffering of men is endless. I, I remember a police officer saying to me in a case where a child had been harmed and the woman had had horrendous postnatal depression, hadn't been supported. All of the kind of issues that we've heard about that face so many women where a disaster is waiting to happen. And this police officer told me this woman had got herself pregnant and I said, well, she'd have to be pretty ambidextrous and special to have done that. He didn't even see the irony. Yep. No, and it is, it's, again, it's, it's this sense that it's women who hold all the responsibility. 
they hold the responsibility of becoming pregnant when they shouldn't. They hold the responsibility of having to have an abortion, which is still today represented as the worst possible thing a woman could have to do is to have to have an abortion rather than abortion is just another form of contraception. Women hold the burden for all of these things. Yes, indeed. Which then leads me to ask you and we can ask our listeners What can we do? Because this is a crisis, isn't it? It, It's reflective of, I think, a context of dissolving women's rights and burgeoning misogyny. But it's also right here, right now, a crisis in the courts. It's a crisis for women in general. And it's in particular a crisis for young working class women who probably have no idea about any of this and could find themselves being collared for committing a serious crime and have no idea what the hell has happened. Oh, it's a crisis for a number of reasons. Partly because we have these bits of legislation that are just sat there ready to be used if the prosecution get a sense that a woman should have done more to protect her fetus. So that's one of the issues. But the second is... Now that we have access to telemedical abortion, so you no longer have to go to a clinic to access medication, you can um, ring an abortion provider and they'll ask you some questions and then the pills can be sent to you. What is undoubtedly happening is some of the women who will be phoning these abortion providers will be miscarrying before the medication arrives. So they then, they'll have this abortion medication, which they'll do what we all do, right? When you have a leftover prescription, you just put it in your bathroom cabinet and you forget about it. Unless, or until, either you need it because you become pregnant again and you you don't wish to be, or a friend becomes pregnant and they don't wish to be. And you go, oh, it's okay, because I've got this medication sat in my bathroom cabinet. It's, I'll just go get it for you. What women don't realise is that in those situations, they are breaking the law, they are committing procuring a miscarriage, even though they're the exact same pills that they could get if they ring the abortion provider and get them sent to them again. But if they take them simply after having them in their bathroom cabinet, they are breaking the law and risking life imprisonment. So this is a ticking time bomb for a number of reasons. What can we do? We need to get rid of these laws. So we need to get rid of procuring a miscarriage. We need to take abortion out of the criminal law and make it a, another medical procedure that is regulated by the medical community in exactly the same way organ transplant is and exactly the same way as other uh, medical procedures, all of which are far more complex and have far more ethical issues involved in than having a termination of a pregnancy. Again, a form of contraception. So... Lobbying MPs, you know, write to your MP, talk to them. Um, The British Pregnancy Advisory Service, they have a big campaign wing. If you go onto their website and look at the work they're doing, you'll be able to sign up to get their their news articles and um, to follow them on social media. You'll hear about the campaigns they're working with. Those are the sorts of things that we can do. Um, I'm working with them now, Julie, you, you know about this, that we're doing what we can to try and get this information to our elected leaders and to try and make it a focus under this government it's obviously hard work but this needs to be something that is regularly talked about well you obviously have been doing a huge amount of work on this and it's because of your work that I uh, came across these issues and wouldn't normally have engaged with that aspect of the criminal law although 
obviously it affects women and there are real connections between that and men's violence and coercive control and the like. But even so, I wouldn't have come across it had you not been doing this. So as an academic, you must be doing something right because, I mean, I don't want to be rude about academics. Well, yes, I do. I always am. Look, sometimes, you know, you write in peer-reviewed journals and only five people get to read it. Your work has been really well disseminated and you have clearly been doing something to make connections between campaigners, law reformers, other academics and feminists on the ground. How can we learn from that? Oh, I I mean, for me, becoming an academic, and the reason why I can't imagine myself being anything other than being an academic is because I want to change the world for good. That's that's why I'm doing the work I am. And we started talking by me telling you that I kind of stumbled on this issue. This wasn't what I intended to focus on. Uh, And I stumbled on it because I couldn't believe the way the law was being applied and the injustice that women are experiencing. Some of the most vulnerable women that you will find are experiencing. And for me, this is about what academic research is for. It's about uncovering what is happening to these women, to finding a way for us to make sure it doesn't happen to other women in the future. Well, we will help all we can. I know there are many feminists and human rights campaigners and just basically decent people that are listening and that don't want this to be happening and will have heard about this for the very first time. I still think this is really shocking. And as I said at the beginning of our conversation, I thought I'd stop being shocked. But absolutely not. This is something almost out of a Margaret Atwood novel, but it's happening here and it's happening now. And we should all get on board with whatever campaigns and law reform efforts are Um, afoot so will you keep us posted on what you're doing and let us know how we can involve ourselves absolutely um you can take a look at my website which um i do some video blogs for so emmamilne.com uh if you also follow me on social media you'll see bits and bobs that i disseminate there and yep there's there's definitely more in the pipe work in order to hopefully raise awareness and to think about what do we need to do to take a campaign forward to try and change the law and and to stop this happening? Thank you. And thanks, Emma, for all of the brilliant work that you're doing and that you'll continue to do. It's been a real pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Julie. Isn't that terrifying? It's all well and good for UK feminists to look to the US and the disastrous overturning of Roe versus Wade. But this needs to be seen as a warning to the world and we cannot underestimate the impact of giving the fetus legal protection through the criminal law at the peril of women's rights. Until next time.